This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCastNet. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing one spell. With Revelations of the Black Cube, we continue discussing the official rules of the Invisible Sun RPG, this time focusing on partial success options from the rules primer. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. With Revelations of the Black Cube, we dive into a topic in the Invisible Sun Rules Primer, Variations on Success and Failure. In traditional models of RPGs, success is typically treated as binary. Uh, you either succeed or you fail, and you roll dice uh, to, over, to maybe exceed some critical value. And if you roll high enough, you succeed. And successes all look alike, whether you beat the, the target by 1 or 4 or 15. And if you fail, uh, you have a singular uh, failure. Uh, and a failure looks alike, whether you missed the target value by 1 or 4 or 10 or whatever. Uh, but modern RPGs have moved away from this in many situations. Though I guess not, you know, some of them have moved away to complicate this success and failure model in different ways. Uh, some of this is motivated by a, a popular phrase uh, com- over the past decade or two in RPG design, uh, often referred to as failing forward. Uh, The notion here is that there was a problem with that traditional binary success model uh, in that if you failed at the wrong time, your entire game could come to a halt. I think this is an example we've used before, but we might use as an example a locked door in a dungeon. And your whole story is about moving through this dungeon. And they have to get past this door to get into the new wing uh, or to get access to the stairwell down to the next level. Well, either they have no thief or the thief fails to pick the lock. And your warrior fails to bash the door down. So through some series of failures, uh, the door is still standing there. The door is still locked. And you have to decide what to do. In a traditional system, there is no uh, answer within the system itself as to how to handle a failure or success uh, that derails the story. You just say, well, uh, I guess we need to, you know, we'll meet uh, next week and we'll start a different dungeon that hopefully has slightly less sturdy doors uh, or something along those lines. Uh, But the approach of failing forward suggests you should never have a role in a situation where failure of that role could feasibly stop you from progressing in the story. Uh, This has never happened to me, so I don't really have much to contribute. (laughs) Okay. Well, since you've had no experience with this, maybe a second example uh, would uh, inspire you. In investigative role-playing games, uh, this has been a particular problem uh, because for for doors and dungeons, we tend to have lots of ways around them, and we'll sometimes fudge the system a little bit and say, yeah, you 
you failed your bend bars and lift gates roll warrior in first edition D&D, but you know what? You've got a hammer. And so let's try again just by hitting it really hard with a hammer. Uh, or the wizard will have a knock spell, or there's all sorts of ways around it. So the absolute coming to a halt with no chance of overcoming the challenge uh, happened sometimes, but not very often. It was really more of a hypothetical. But in investigative games, this was a much bigger deal where the game was predicated on on, on finding clues. So finding a particular matchbook might lead an investigator to the bar they need to uh, start uh, interviewing people at or where they find the next stage of the mystery. But if they don't notice the matchbook, everything comes to a halt. Uh, This was the reputation of some Call of Cthulhu scenarios, that there were key clues that if the group missed it because they all rolled low on their perception rolls, then uh, the game just ended. They didn't know where to go. They had no leads. The investigation stopped, and presumably Cthulhu rose and uh, swallowed the earth. Um, So somebody failed forward and created gumshoe. Is that what happened? That is almost exactly what happened. So the, uh, Robin Laws, the creator of the gumshoe system, said his key motivation for the gumshoe, gumshoe system was to create an investigative role-playing game where uh, there was not a probabilistic element to whether you succeeded or failed on any clue, uh, acquiring clues that were required to move the story forward. So if the matchbox was necessary to find the next the bar you needed to find in the investigation, you always found the matchbox that you didn't roll for that. Yeah, the success or failure was put on the players to like figure out where the clues were leading them. Yes. And they still the gumshoe system also has failure, possible failure for more kind of physical actions or mm-hmm. the sorts of actions where you can still fail forward. That is, if you don't succeed on a particular role, the, the story didn't come to a halt. Uh, you just got punched in the face or uh, you just uh, drove your car off the road or whatever it might be that ind- it was indicative of your failure on a particular physical action. Uh, but you ne- the game never came to a halt because you just didn't notice the matchbox or the the envelope taped underneath the desk or some sort of investigative component of the game. And I think both of these illustrations point to the underlying philosophy that of not allowing the dice to even possibly put you in a situation where the story's done because there's no way to move forward. And so yeah. the ideology of failing forward is that you, whenever you roll, always have an idea of how a failed roll will move the story forward uh, rather than just coming to a halt. Yeah. And uh, that, that first example that you had, like, I, I think that's probably my most recent, you know, it comes to mind uh, as the most recent situation that I ran into where it was like, Oh, whoops, there's a door here and the party's not going to be able to get through it. So what do I do about this? Like in retrospect, I should have just taken those doors out and, uh, just had them not be locked, but in in the heat of the moment, like, well, now what do we do? So how do we? How are we going to handle that? How does that get changed with Invisible Sun? So the the rules primer points out several uh, changes that uh, in the system that that allow for avoiding these traps. Though it doesn't use the language, I don't believe, of failing forward exactly. Uh, one of those is the possibility of a partial success. 
Mm -hmm. uh, that is not treating the outcome of a die roll as either a full success or a full failure, but instead that an outcome could be somewhere in between success and failure, maybe success with a cost. Uh, what kind of cost? I mean, how, okay. So let's go back to our example of, we have this locked door and your, your thief can't pick it. And okay. Your thief is trying to pick the lock open and fails. So I guess your backup is have the fighter smash it open. But I mean, what do you do in that case? Uh, when you have a partial success, uh, maybe you uh, just to come up with several possible examples, you might, uh, the, the, you might declare that given the die roll, the thief, uh, unlocks the door. However, their, their tools are jammed into the lock and unrecoverable. Okay. So there's a, they get through, but the, the failure that they rolled is, well, your tools are busted. Yeah. You lose a resource. Yeah. Uh, alternatively. Uh, you might say uh, you uh, are able to open the lock, but in doing so, you have to really put pressure uh, to uh, to uh, uh, kind of undo the jammed mechanism, uh, and the result is a clanging sound that echoes through the dungeon. Yeah, so if you're trying to be sneaky, your uh, uh, advantage of surprise may be wasted. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, or you might just say, and it, depending on the on the game system, you might say, "Oh, well, you failed," which really means you failed to notice that as your pick is uh, as you're maneuvering your pick through the lock itself, uh, you don't notice the pen that is sticking out at the bottom, uh, and your uh, maneuvering the lock pick uh, ends up uh, resulting in you jamming your finger into a little pen that was embedded inside the locking mechanism, and now you have to wonder why would you put a pen there if you didn't poison it. Uh, yeah, so those are, those would be ways to accomplish the goal, but still have some sort of penalty associated with failing the actual check. Right. So there's consequence to not succeeding, but that consequence isn't that the story, uh, stops. The consequence is that story opens up in new ways because now either you're opening, you move forward with fewer resources, you move forward, but you're, you, you may have alerted other creatures to your uh, location or you move forward, but you're starting to wonder if that pain in your arm is indicative of poison or just a natural soreness from your spelunking activities. Uh, so you've broadened the story rather than brought it to a halt. So then this is this is called out in the rules primer, right? Yes. The uh, rules primer says like, all right, partial success. Like, when do you know you should be doing this partial success? Because if you're running into this and you're saying, well, if they fail this, what's going to happen? And if your answer is, I don't know, why would you have had them roll for it in the first place? <laughs> well, yeah, you may have best avoided the roll entirely. But it could be that you want to introduce some degree of tension, mm -hmm. but the tension doesn't have to be success or failure. The, the tension can be whether you have achieved the success, avoiding all of the potential risks associated with that success. And we'll talk a little bit later about an article, a, re a resource we'll share in the show notes that enumerates uh, various options for risks that are often uh, useful, kind of a menu of options to choose from. Okay. But in, in general terms, 
Uh, I think it's useful to, uh, in circumstances where you want there to be tension. You want there to be a role, but you don't want the role to possibly result in the story stopping, but instead mm-hmm. shift the consequence from pure failure to uh, success uh, with some sort of, uh, of consequence. And that, that feels like something that you just sort of get a knack for as you run games. Right. And uh, something we may talk about or we've mentioned before and may talk about in the future, given the recent release of Robin Law's new book called Beating the Story. Uh, it may play into how uh, where you are in the story in terms of upbeats and downbeats and the, the pacing you've established. Uh, you may want to uh, really, if you may really want a downbeat because the players have been having too many emotional upbeats and you need to vary the uh, the tone a little bit. And so you might want that partial success to, to bite a little more than it would otherwise. Uh, or if man, the, the dice just really aren't working for the, the players at all. And you need to find a little bit of, of, of success. You can use partial success to kind of give that to them, even if the, the dice are just misbehaving that night. Uh, this is particularly important as the rules primer notes because in a, in a change from the cipher system, there are really no special results of the dice in uh, in Invisible Sun. Uh, the one exception is if you roll a zero on a magical die, then you get a magical flux. But that really could be good or bad, or more likely than is just kind of weird randomness. Yeah, or it uh, could but, be you could grow a mustache. Uh, or half a mustache, or a yeah. mustache made of worms. Uh, you can go all sorts of crazy, depending on how many of those magical flexes you rolled at one time. Hold on, I gotta write down a costume idea for Halloween. <laughs> uh, but on the, your basic roll, a zero isn't a GM intrusion like it would be in a, a zero in a cipher or a, mm-hmm. a yeah zero in the cipher system or a one in the cipher system. Uh, a nine is not a major effect like it would be in the cipher system. Those are just zeros and nines. Uh, and instead, the ability to sculpt these unusual occurrences, either particularly good uh, successes, remarkable successes in the language of the rules primer, or particularly bad failures, catastrophic failures in the language of the the, the primer, are purely the choice of the GM through the GM shift system. And the GM shifts are a lot like GM intrusions, though shifts could be positive or negative. And I guess that's pretty apparent when you're talking about catastrophic failures and remarkable successes. Right. Now, GMs varied in the cipher system how they use GM intrusions. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people use them almost entirely to do negative for, for negative changes in encounters uh, and, and for the, the 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 players. That it was always something bad or something happening in the story that was probably going to work against what the players wanted. Uh, I usually use mine to uh, make my players' characters stick their hands and feet into uncomfortable or disgusting places. <laughs> yeah. I, I usually use them uh, to complicate encounters. Sometimes players could use those complications to their advantage, mm-hmm. but it usually took some, some creative thought. It wasn't just a direct, it wasn't the equivalent of a major effect. I wasn't just saying here's some bonus damage or something along those lines. It was something that would, would make the encounter more memorable. Uh, is kind of what my litmus test for a GM intrusion shifts are open 
to rather direct beneficial effects as well as direct negative effects. And one of the examples in the rules primer is like do is like having a very targeted uh, uh, attack uh, that results in extra damage or bypasses armor or something along those lines. So you can use a GM shift to directly and unequivocally uh, help your players and should do that because catastrophic failures and uh, remarkable successes are one of the ways you generate joy and despair. Which is important for advancing characters. Exactly. You, since you need both, uh, you don't want to be in a situation where you're only using GM shifts to uh, create you know, worsening situations for the party and then giving them appropriate despairs because that what the, the uh, parties will end up with or your players will end up with stacks and stacks of despairs. But without joys, they can't combine them to make crux, cruxes and advance their character. So you want to balance joys and despairs. And part of that will be balancing GM shifts to make sure that in addition to all the other things that are happening in the narrative, that the end result is a relatively balanced distribution of joy and despair. Mm -hmm. it, it's building that beat structure into the advancement mechanism for the game itself. It doesn't tell you to alternate joy and despair in some strict fashion, but that over the long run, you know, across several sessions, maybe uh, you want to on average expect that players will have approximately the same joy and despair. Yeah. And I guess uh, how much joy and despair your players have is a pretty good, pretty good indicator of like how things have been going for them over the past couple of sessions. Right. And it'd be boring if it was, if everything was always awesome and everything was kept coming up Millhouse and uh, things were great. And uh, though that's not exactly what Millhouse experiences, but anyway. Um, uh, are you sure? Because it seemed like everything was great. Well, Millhouse thought everything was great, but no one mm -hmm. who was watching The Simpsons thought everything was going great for Millhouse. Uh, so, you know, if, it, if the players are accumulating a bunch of joy without any despair, it's probably an indication of the story is not providing interesting challenges. It's not providing setbacks to players and is uh, probably not a very interesting story. And people will, will lose interest because of that. Uh, accordingly, uh, if they're piling and piling up despairs, you might have like emo players or something that really like to just pile up the despair. Uh, but they probably want to mix some successes up. Uh, and so if they just have despairs, that might also indicate the risk that they become disengaged from the story. And instead, you want to sh the game is designed to shoot for a long-term balance between joy and despair to fuel the progress of characters. And one of the ways GMs can make sure that balance is achieved is to complement whatever is happening in the story with the use of GM shifts to award uh, despairs and joys to compensate for the joys and despairs in the natural evolution of the story. Yeah, this this is making me think I'm going to have another section on my notes in the uh, the guiding hand. Uh, along with my character notes, I'll probably put like an up or a down arrow to give me an indication of how are things going for them uh, at the current moment. Yeah, uh, I will have to look up the link for this, but someone has put together a free web page uh, that has a little web app that uses the Robin Laws kind of upbeat, downbeat and then different types of beats system from mm -hmm. beating the story. So you can actually do that as you're playing. And uh, he recommends just creating little note cards 
Uh, so you keep a stack in front of you and you put one down whenever there's something good or bad happens and you can track over time. If the last three things were all good things, let's throw something more challenging in there for variety or, or, or vice versa. Uh, so there's both electronic tools and analog tools one can use for this. Um, this was also, uh, one of the episodes of the misdirected Mark. Yes. Yeah. The beat structure. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes too. Yeah, we can do that. Uh, that was based on the original book, the Hamlet's hit points from Robin Laws. Oh, so I'm guessing there was like a section in Hamlet's hit points that talked about this, but, and now he's expanded upon it with its own book. Oh, well, pretty much the whole book of Hamlet's Hit Points was about this. Um, the, the structure of the book is is, is interesting. Uh, so it starts with one page of uh, that is some titled something along the lines of, if you don't want to read this book, but you want to fake like you read this book, read this one page. <laughs> and then there's a short section, maybe 10, 20 pages, that lays out this system of beats, types of beats, up beats, down beats, and how to mix them together. Okay. But the 20 something pages does not a book make. The rest of the book is a analysis of three movies using this structure to illustrate how these great films use different ways to express the progress of different beats and different up and down beats. Uh, I believe the movies were, um, oh, it was one of the Bond movies. Uh, I think it was Dr. No. Okay. Uh, it, uh, Hamlet, which I guess is not a movie, but a play and also, uh, several, movies. <laughs> also several movies. That's true. But I originally mm-hmm. play. Uh, and so those three, are you, are you works, sure? I'm confident it was originally a play. Yeah. But I thought uh, Kenneth Branagh wrote, uh, wrote it. <laughs> no, because I saw a riff tracks of a like 1960s version. Uh, and it, it's amazing what riff tracks can do to Hamlet. Oof. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking of something. Um, I was thinking of another thing that wasn't going to be very helpful, which was uh, I was going to suggest that one of the movies was Pee Wee's Big Adventure. That would be actually a fun exercise. It sure would. And I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there have been people. I don't know how much progress has been made, but there have been several people to propose a database of beat analyses of different movies, novels, plays and the like. Yeah, that would be interesting. And the tool, the the web app that I mentioned was intended, it said, in part for people to use in writing their own adventures and in writing their own novels or screenplays. Mm -hmm. Uh, Beating the the story, the new book that just came out, is intended to take the Hamlet hit points approach and broaden it to a, a different audience. And so take the same idea, but talk to screenwriters and novel writers and not just RPG designers. Cool. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, I'm probably gonna have to read through Hamlet's hit points at some point. It's good. Uh, I really enjoyed it and I've read it a couple times and I anticipate reading it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe before I read uh, beating the story. Uh, do we have any other like success and failure options that we should talk about before we move on to risks? No, I, I think the options really are about incorporating different types of risks. 
uh, and then we, and, and we'll uh, well we'll talk about different types of risks. Was there something in particular you wanted to t- to mention? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, it, like the the rules for this, it, it feels kind of like uh, advice for running a game in general. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than like a codified, like, here's how you should be doing partial successes or success, but it's just like, Hey, in order to keep things interesting and moving, like, here are some options that you can do to, you know, still move things along, even if the roles didn't turn out how you were expecting them to. Right. I think this advice in the rules primer, uh, will work in just about any game. I use the same approach when I ran Dungeons and Dragons cipher Mm -hmm. system, um, you know, gumshoe system, really just about any RPG. I have bought into the failing forward notion and I would, I bring partial su- success to just about every game I run, even if the system doesn't actually say that partial success is an element of the system. Well, it's, it's a GM trick. It's, I don't know. Aside from like apocalypse world, it's, it's not something that's really codified. Right. As far as I know, as, I'm sure there's something out there that's like, hey, you know, contradicting what I'm saying here. But um, it feels like more of a GM tool that you can just pull out when you need it. Yeah. And it's and it has existed for a very long time. Yep. An I have an experience I had in the 80s was running a was going to a con game when I was a kid and kind of I didn't realize at the time what I was experiencing. But what I was experiencing was a GM who worked with partial successes. Okay. Because he would just ask, he would put us in situations and ask us, what do we do? And, and it wasn't something like swing a sword or the sorts of things we were used to doing with Dungeons and Dragons. Um, instead, he wanted us to come up with creative uses for our abilities um, and our spells and psionic powers and things like that. And, uh, and he rewarded the creative use of these powers, even if they didn't work with the rules as written. Uh, and he kind of used a partial success approach to say, well, the spell doesn't quite work that way but it, you get a partial success by using that spell. And here's what happens. Mm-hmm. And it was a fun experience and it was an entirely different way of looking at the game. Again, so it's, this is not an artifact of the forge or debates in the nineties about micro games or anything like that. This goes back to the origins of, of role playing though that my story doesn't come from 1977 or whatever, but it comes from the mid eighties. <laughs> so for as per, I'm pretty, and I'm sure it wasn't the first time it was ever done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm betting you know, it pretty much as long as we've had RPGs, even those that said that success is binary, people treated it as uh, partial at times when the game was more fun when, uh, for doing so. Uh, when the game is more fun. Uh, so tell me about this, risks. Yeah. And and so this partial success description in the, uh, the primer is useful to get you thinking about how you can move away from the binary model of success. Uh, but it's just sort of getting the, that thought process rolling. And I found a, a great article by Rob Donahue, uh, the co-founder of Evil Hat Games, on the subject of risks and partial success. Uh, and he's talking from uh, really the fate system and about half the article is, is more or less specific to fate accelerated system. But mm-hmm. the first half of the article is very general and I think provides some useful advice for the varieties of risks you can use uh, as part of a partial success system. So he talks about seven, no, eight uh, different 
consequences that can be associated with a partial success. So that even if you were to you know fail a roll, uh, you can say that well you you do move forward and succeed to the extent that you accomplish what you thought you wanted. However, there's a consequence that goes with it that make, makes your success costly. And thus it, it uh, indicates that the low role had a consequence to it, that it wasn't just that, you know, I'm ignoring your role and letting you succeed anyway. Your role me- meant that instead of a, f- instead of failing at what you wanted to achieve, you failed in the way that you, succeeded uh and and then brings with with it some sort of negative consequence so if we were to take a look at one of our examples which was uh you're a bunch of spies and you were or you're investigators and you were trying to find clues and there was a matchbook taped to the bottom of the desk of whoever's place it was mm-hmm. you miss your role um how would you use these risks to help you evaluate what's going to happen for a partial success? Well, I'm going to use both examples because some of them will fit better than others. One Mm -hmm. is the locked door and the other is the hidden matchbook. Yeah. So the the first uh, risk that uh, Rob Donahue talks about is cost and that the action might succeed, but at an unexpected cost. Oh, and so for the thieves tools breaking, like your thieves tools breaking. Absolutely. Uh, I, I can't, off the top of my head, come up with an, an analogy for cost with finding the matchbook, but a, a similar example might be um, for finding the matchbook. Nope, nope. Uh, I mean, I was just thinking, like, well, yeah, you didn't succeed, but oh, maybe there's like uh, one of your CIs knows about it, and he, you know, cons you for some money in order for him to give up that information. But that's kind of a stretch from. Uh, the initial check. No, I, I think that's a good idea, though. It's a, and it's a way to think about this: is you, you kind of mm-hmm. displace the failure by saying this was the only way to learn about the Hellfire Club and where it's lo- you know the address of the Hellfire Club or whatever. Uh, and so, the, not finding the matchbook meant that you didn't find the Hellfire Club. So instead, you create an alternative pathway to get that same information. But that in, that it, that new pathway has a cost to it. Maybe that's bribing someone to get the information. Uh, or paying off a, C, a, a confidential informant or something along those lines. So I, th- I think it's a good way of thinking about it. It's a good example. Okay, cool. Thank you. <laughs> I did a good job. Uh, yeah, okay. good, good job there. Uh, the second risk is harm. So when the fighter is trying to break down the door, maybe they fail their role. You could say, instead of saying doors, the, the door is still there, you know, give up and go home to the village and retire. You might say uh, you push <laughs> and what you thought would easily break, break the door down. Instead, uh, you encounter a great deal more resistance. And while you do break through the door, you take a certain amount of damage because you are gashed by the the uh, the debris that you leave behind or something along those lines. Um, going back to a D&D example, we, the, the players ran into this – canyon or a ravine that they were trying to get across and it was too wide to jump so they the the fire the, the strong guys i forget what they were they said oh we're gonna cut down one of the trees in the forest and then we'll be able to you know just crawl across that to get to the other side and i said okay cool uh that sounds like athletics or some sort of check and uh they rolled it and failed and i said hey you know what it's kind of lame that you can't cut down a tree if this is, you know, you did it or you didn't. So I said, yeah, you cut down the tree, but it takes you a lot longer 
And now you're going to take a level of exhaustion because it, you know, was so much work. Right. So the exhaustion was the harm. Yep. Uh, the time it takes is actually the third risk that uh, Rob talks about, which is a delay. And this is most appropriate when the story involves some sort of ticking clock. So the, it might be that you tell the, the thief that, oh, well, you rolled low. You can unlock the door with your thief tools. However, it's going to take you a long time. And you know that the army of orcs is coming up behind you. Mm-hmm. So you have, you're wasting all of your, your lead uh, getting away from the orcs by opening this door. And now they've caught up with you and you just get the door shut behind you. So they get through the door, but whatever was pursuing them has, has used that time uh, to, uh, to approach them or the, you know, it takes time to cut down the trees, but you're, you're using time at, you can think of it also as a resource, as a cost, mm-hmm. uh, but time is so important in certain types of stories. That's an appropriate risk for a, a partial success. So you could say you succeed, but it takes more time and time is not something you have to spare right now. Um, there are a whole bunch more risks here. What is spillover? Spillover are, would involve, this is our, our fifth uh, risk. It is a consequence that involves the secondary effects of whatever it is that you're doing. So maybe uh, our fighter knocks over the door. They fail their role. You're saying, okay, you do knock over the door. However, in doing so, you tear down parts of the wall that the door was connected to. And now you're dealing with a new problem. There's a spillover consequence. Oh, okay. So like when uh, Dresden is fighting some monster in a warehouse and he lights the whole thing on fire. And now right. he's dealing with a monster and a warehouse that's burning down around him. Right. And maybe a monster on fire. Yeah. <laughs> Could also be a problem. Yeah. I, I have a t-shirt that says, warning, zombies simply flammable. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> setting a zombie on fire might solve your problem an hour from now, but right now you just have a flaming zombie. So that would be your spillover. Okay. <laughs> that would be a spillover. Right. Uh, it's, so it's, it has the, it's uh, consequences related to the direct object of uh, the success that you're, you're shooting for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't really think of an example from the uh, match book that doesn't overlap with one of the other risks, but I think the examples are like structural damage caused by succeeding in knocking the door down uh, a, a mist. You could use the spillover sort of as also with a mist, uh, attack roll so that you know dresden's missing his attack with a with his flame spell and instead of simply saying you fail you say oh yeah you hit that vampire unfortunately the arc of flame also hits the drapes yeah um <laughs> it, it sounds like a spillover is a a way to introduce more diverse complications associated with what you had been doing um right that sort of piles things on and gives you more problems to deal with, hopefully in a fun and creative way. Yeah. This sounds to me like the sort of the stuff that GM ships are made of. Mm-hmm. What's ineffectiveness. The, is that just, well, you didn't do it. Well, ineffectiveness might just not be a failure. Cause that, cause in some sense, ineffectiveness means you failed. Right. Uh, but that, you, uh, your partial success has resulted in something that does move the plot forward, but isn't as effective as you hoped it would be. The example I was thinking of here would be something like uh, a, a, a partial success in creating an object. Remember, our, our game has makers in it, mm-hmm. for instance. Uh, a, a partial success in the creation of an object might be a flawed object. 
one that works, but only at certain times, maybe only one time. Okay. Uh, maybe it only works in, you know, in, uh, in a, in an imprecise way, but it's, it's flawed in its creation. And I think of that as ineffectiveness because you, you have, if your goal was to create a, well, building on the last example, a fire extinguisher, maybe you roll to create your fire extinguisher, but, uh, you, and you, your partial success could be, you created it, but it only works once or you created it, but it's really hard to target with this particular fire fire extinguisher. So you're going to have these other complications that you'll have to overcome whenever you want to use this, as mm-hmm. opposed to what you'd think is an uncomplicated use of the material that you're creating. Yeah, that's that's an that's a tough one to apply to the earlier examples we had. I'm not sure how you would put ineffectiveness on like trying to open a locked door. Right, without Yeah, without it just feeling like something we did. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we're, we're, we're closing in on our last three types of risks that Donahue talks about. Uh, the next is revelation, which sounds profound, but all it means is you've revealed the players in a circumstance where they do not want to be revealed. So this, again, is the thief that picks the lock, but in doing so, uh, uh, like trips a, a stuck part of the mechanism and you hear a loud clanging sound in the door mechanism mm-hmm. uh, or the fighter knocks over the door. And in doing so there's a loud uh, commotion and suddenly every creature on that floor of the dungeon knows right where you are. Uh, is it really just um, the circumstance of being discovered or is it the other type of revelation like, oh, you reveal some sort of uncomfortable truth that they didn't know about. I think the intent here is the uh, being revealed to people you don't want to be revealed to. Okay. Uh, and that the you know learning things that ought not be learned would fall more under cost and harm, uh, whether it's a direct cost or it's a harm to sanity or something like that. Mm-hmm. It might even be a spillover effect, depending on how you look at it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think a spillover might be the way to go with that. Okay, cool. These categories are, are fuzzy and and they're designed to be fuzzy because, again, this is just a list for inspiration. Yeah. And I was thinking about it when we first came into this and it's like, hey, um, partial success or failing forward, like you can you can think of anything to keep the story moving forward. But giving yourself these parameters and basically putting yourself in this box to say, come up with an idea that fits in here. Uh, I find that having just that little nudge of direction makes it easier to come up with something a little bit faster. Yeah, I agree. That's what, why I thought this was uh, something I plan to put on my GM screen or its equivalent as mm-hmm. a reminder. Uh, the next is another difficult to characterize risk. It's referred to by Donahue as confusion. So the it's defined in some sense by its opposite, uh, the lack of confusion is sort of uh, clarity of communication. Mm-hmm. And so you think of this in social encounters, that if you succeed, you've communicated your point uh, and have succeeded because you've done so. If you fail, maybe the consequence isn't so much that uh, you directly fail, but instead you've just muddled the situation and no one understands what's going on. So I think of this as trying to bribe a guard. <laughs> uh, or convince a guard to let you into the club uh, or something along those lines. And it's a social test. You've failed. 
a, a, a total failure would simply be the, the balancer says, go away. Uh, perhaps a partial success would be, oh, you're the VIPs that we're expecting for the evening. That could be a fun complication. And it, and that's, I think, a, a, a valid interpretation of confusion. You have, you have succeeded, but you have a new complication because you have been confused for someone else. Mm-hmm. Or it might just be, instead of the guard saying, no, go away, the guard's like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> they are confused because they don't understand the nature of your request. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a, another way to go with it. Just be confused. Yeah, um, and so I think that one might be a little bit easier to pull in and do with Invisible Sun because the surreal nature of the setting is going to lead to easy confusion on a lot of players' parts. I would think that seems like a fair point. I hadn't thought of that. That's a good. That's a good. A good point, especially with. But it's in particularly in social encounters, and I think Invisible Sun is going to have a lot of social encounters. Yeah, it might. <laughs> uh, so what is our last one? Cause it sounds a lot our, like some others. Uh, it's it, to me, it, it sounds a lot like, uh, cost. Uh, the last one is waste. And it usually just means that whatever resource you were using, you're using more of it than you would have used. Okay. Now this overlaps a lot with delay because mm-hmm. if you're using time, then you're wasting time. That's a delay. Uh, or if you're using a resource, then if you use too much of it, you're, that's a cost to that resource. I think cost is, in, in these examples from, the, from, from Donahue, is something that's not necessarily expended at all with a success, but is only expended in the case of a partial success. Whereas with a waste, it is something that is normally expended in, this, in a successful use of whatever it is that you're using the resource for, but you're just going to use a lot more of it. So with a bribe, um, a, a cost is you're trying to bribe uh, a guard and the guard said, this money is really interesting, but what I really want is this other person's contact information. And so there's a new cost you have to pay uh, in giving over that contact information in addition to the bribe, the monetary bribe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your bribe's With gone waste, to waste. It would, yeah, whereas a, yeah, a, a waste bribe is here's uh, – I'm going to bribe you with 50 bucks and the, the guard says, no, I need 100 it's costing you more of the resource oh, okay, you were planning it. on using anyway. Uh, yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Okay. It's a pretty fine distinction. I mm-hmm. think if you lost waste because it happened to say roll over onto page two of your list, then you probably would still come up with the same ideas under cost. So it wouldn't be that much of a waste. <laughs> it might not, <laughs> uh, but that might lead to confusion. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, I don't want to keep making jokes about the different risks because I mean, confusion causes delay. Right. And you really don't want to like craft your own GM screen and just have it be that ineffective with all the the stuff that you don't need on it. (laughs) Right. And as I said, these are overlapping risks. Uh, There are cases that can fall under multiple categories. It's just a a list to be used for inspiration purposes, but I think it's, it is useful in that regard. Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, one last thing I want to point out that's the focus of the second half of the article, which is very specific to Fate Accelerated, is that uh, Donahue suggests that you match the cost to the approach that players take to a particular task. Now, match the risk? Uh, matching the approach to the risk. Okay, got yes. it. Uh, Fate Accelerated 
uses the term approach in a very specific way. I don't think we have to use it in that way for this advice to be useful. Uh, well, one thing you can use as a, as a uh, hint as to what sorts of risks would be appropriate in a given circumstance is ask, in what way are players trying to accomplish their goal? If they're trying to accomplish their goal quickly and they're emphasizing speed, they're emphasizing efficiency, then maybe delay or waste is an appropriate risk. Mm -hmm. If they're trying to emphasize stealth, then revelation is a key risk. So think about the the strategy that players are using to accomplish whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish and and draw inspiration from that strategy to identify the most relevant risks to a situation. And that's really all we need to do to borrow that link of approaches to risks from uh, the Fate Accelerated system. Uh, and we don't really need to take it much further than that to implement it. Yeah, uh, I, I like having the list to, you know, kickstart the, the process of coming up with something uh, for a partial success. So I'll probably use those. And the web page even has little icons for each of the risks, which is kind of handy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be inspirational, especially for those who sort of think in visual and uh, figurative uh, ways. Those icons might be even more inspirational than the words. Cool. Um, well, uh, how about we wrap it up here? Yeah, I think this is a useful tool uh, that uh, I recommend GMs consider. Uh, it's a way to really move stories forward. And uh, it prevents you from getting into a situation where uh, w- because of unlucky die rolls, uh, you don't know what to do. This gives you a lifeline out of those situations. So I think it's a useful read of a blog post uh, building on the section in uh, the rules primer. Uh, that is generally good advice for Invisible Sun, Cypher System, or just about any other RPG. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I don't know where you want to put this, but hopefully on the next show we'll be talking about actual Invisible Sun components and setting and all the stuff that we couldn't talk about before. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is currently available for pre-order at InvisibleSunRPG.com. For a limited time, you'll receive an additional Sooth deck when you pre-order the game. You can find our blog at IncantationsPodcast.blogspot.com or email us at IncantationsPodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore red on Twitter. Do us a favor. Leave us a rating uh, and a review on iTunes. Uh, It really helps people find out about our show. Another great way is to just uh, tell a friend. uh, Tell a friend about incantations. Tell them about Invisible Sun. And that would really help us out a lot.